you, Dewey, for that introduction. I'm sure Diana appreciated that, too. Um, it's a privilege to be here this morning. I don't take this opportunity lightly. I esteem this pulpit. I understand the men who have stood behind this podium here, our own president, Dr. John MacArthur, such men as Dave Hawking, Oswald Sanders, and the list goes on. So I don't take this responsibility lightly. And I want to share with you this morning from the Word of God. And if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them to the book of 2 Timothy. I trust you all brought your Bibles this morning because we will use them. Um, we'll be looking at a number of different scripture, and we want to understand what the Word of God has for us this morning. The book of 2 Timothy in chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And verse, verses 2 and 3, let, them, let me read them for you. You follow along with me. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. When they asked me to speak this morning, I pondered over in my mind what I could bring to you, the student body of the Master's College, a group that I think, that I esteem, that I think is, is very knowledgeable of the Word of God. And as I pondered it through, there's one thing that, that came to my mind more than anything else, and it's, it's the one thing that has been, over these past four years that I've been a Christian, the passion of my life, the one thing that I've strove for, oftentimes failed and continue to fail, but it's the one thing that, that I yearn for. And as I thought, as a senior of the Master's College, what's the one thing I could leave with this group here this morning? If I could give you one message, one thing to leave with you, what would it be that, what, that I would have for you this morning? What could I bring you from the Word of God that's impressed upon my heart that I want to share with you? And the answer was clear. And the answer was, I wanted to talk to you today about the impact of sound doctrine. The impact sound doctrine has on the life of the believer. And really, there's, there's another reason why I feel compelled to speak on this this morning. And that is because I feel within evangelical Christianity, even within the confines of the Master's College, there are certain trends today, and I think these trends are moving away from sound doctrine. We're moving away from the study of theology. We shun it as if it is some irrelevant, archaic discipline of the past that has no bearing upon our lives today. I see this trend creeping in. I hear it in the classrooms. I hear it within the student body. And I think quite frankly, is dangerous, and I want to address it this morning and tell you of the impact that sound doctrine can have on yours and my life. Just quickly, by way of introduction, I think there's, there's three trends that, that I see today that I just want, to, just want to mention to you, three trends within the church today, three trends within evangelical Christianity that are moving away from doctrine. And the first one the first trend today is this desire to be practical. The desire to be practical. 
We hear the cry today, I don't want to hear it if it's not immediately applicable to my own life. We, we want to be spoon-fed every step of the way, right? We say, give me, give me the five steps to overcoming this sin. Give me the technique to overcoming this problem. We want to be spoon-fed. We can no longer take theology and apply it to our own lives. We have to have someone do that for us. We have lost that art. As a result, we have resorted to man's opinion. How many times have you heard a pastor stand up? Have you heard a Bible teacher, a man on the radio, stand up and give you one, two, three, four, five steps? And none of them are founded in Scripture. There is opinion, they are practical, and that's what we like to hear. They tickle our ears. There's something we can cling to. Don't give us theology. It's irrelevant to our lives. It's not practical. We want the desire to be practical. Listen to the words of the the great commentator H.A. Ironside as he identifies this trend. He says, The modern mind belittles the place of intellect in Christianity and decries doctrine and theology. Away with these relics of the past, it cries. We want no ancient, outworn categories of thought. We would not be found by creeds of dogma. Give us religious experience and practical Christianity. What difference does it make what a man believes? He identified it quite accurately. Our desire to be practical today. And as a result, we have moved away from the study of theology. The second trend is this desire to be relational. All the talk today is on relationships. Every time you turn on the radio, the pastor is speaking on relationships. Every book that's a bestseller, that's a leading seller, deals with our relationships with one another. That's what we like to hear in our youth groups. The buzzword, the thing we have to do is relate to the youth. We have to meet them where they're at, right? That's what we are told. We have to come down to their level. Don't dare give them theology. They can't apply that. That will bore them. No, we must relate. And not only must we relate with one another, but we are told we must get in touch with ourself, with our inner self. We can never be successful in the Christian life until we have come to relate to our own self, till we've figured out who we are. Folks, we have turned away from the study of theology. We have instead turned to the broken systems of psychology to understand man. And instead, psychology has left us with a bankrupt theology. We want, to, we want to relate, but we think theology is not capable of allowing us to relate to one another. It's irrelevant. Kids just can't understand theology. We have to meet them at their level. So not only do we desire to be practical, not only do we desire to be relational, but thirdly, we desire to be emotional. We are a very entertainment-oriented society today, and within the church... In our youth groups, I think of this in the college life, so often, we must keep the kids interested. You know, we, we, have, we must relate to them. Come to their level. We'll have the band. We'll have the skits before, you know, before we teach anything because we, we have to get them in the right mood. You know, we have to put some humor into it to keep them interested, right? We no longer want hymns. We want to sing choruses because that's what they like. That gets them in the mood. That evokes emotion. We want to take our ski trips 
We want to do all those things, but we don't want to study theology. For heaven's sakes, that will bore them. They won't come back. They won't understand it. No. Let's entertain them. Let's see how many we can get. Let's evoke emotion within them. Then they'll respond. Today, I think we see theology as, as kind of a kind of for the theologian, don't we? You know the perception, I, the attitude I get of what theology is for? The only use we think theology has is simply something to put in a, in a doctrinal statement which separates us from other groups, right? We say, we believe in the deity of Christ. Well, that separates us from the liberals. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, that separates us from the moderates. That's our view of theology, and it never goes beyond that. We believe we study it just, just so we know what camp we're in, just so we know what group we're in. And it never transcends and impacts our life. We want to be practical. We want to be relational. We want to be emotional. Why do we need to study theology? Why do we need to study sound doctrine? Simply as a hobby? No. Simply as a, as a way to gain head knowledge? No. Why do we need to study theology? Because of the profound impact it can have upon our lives. With that in mind, turn over in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, just flip back a page. And I want to give you three points of why it is we need to study sound doctrine. Number one, it makes us complete. It makes us complete. 2 Timothy chapter 3, let me read verses 16 and 17, and these are familiar verses. We all know them, but we want to look closely at them. Verse 16, all scripture is, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You notice in verse 16 it says, all scripture, not just some scripture, not just the parts that we like to read, all scripture is inspired by God, literally God-breathed. The NIV translates that God-breathed, and it is. It's one word in the Greek. God-breathed Scripture. It's the very words of God. If for no other reason than that, we should study it. These are God's words to us. But not only is it inspired by God, notice, all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is profitable. Profitable simply means it benefits it serves this purpose. It achieves this end. It's profitable for this. And what are they? Four things. Four words here. Let's look at each one of them. First of all, Scripture, doctrine, is profitable for teaching. For teaching. The King James Version translates this word doctrine. And that's the idea. It's the objective, systematic teaching of doctrine. The objective, systematic teaching of doctrine. That's what Scripture is profitable for. It lays the foundation. And I want you to notice as we go through this passage, as we go through these words, that there's a logical progression within these four words. And the first lays the foundation. It's the doctrine. Right? It teaches us. Let me read to you um, from Psalm, Psalm 19. 
Psalm 19, and our president touched on this the other day. Look, listen how the Word of God instructs and teaches us. It says, The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The Word of God instructs us. Again, in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. Let me read them to you. Just listen to me as you see how the Word of God instructs us. Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, because I have observed thy precepts. I restrain my feet from the evil way, that I might keep thy word. I have not turned aside from thy ordinances, for thou thyself hast taught me. Then verse 104, for thy from thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. It's the word of God. Scripture instructs us in doctrine. In doctrine. Notice the second word. Not only is it profitable for doctrine, for teaching, but it is profitable for reproof. Some of your translations might have the word rebuke. And that's what it means. It means to warn of sin and error. The Word of God warns us of sin. Notice now the progression. We study the Word of God. We learn doctrine. And as we study it, it brings to bear, it brings to light our own sin, and it brings conviction upon our lives. This is, this is in this order here. It's kind of the negative element. First we are taught, and then negatively, it, it convicts us of sin. The famous passage in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, Chapter 4. And this is this is a familiar passage to all of you. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 talks about the convicting, penetrating power of the Word of God. Listen to it. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of with him with whom we have to do. That is the power of the word of God. It's the penetrating, convicting power. It discerns our motives. Why? Why is it we seek to turn to human counselors to figure out our problems? Why is it we, we, we say, oh, you know, oh, this, this is too deep for the word of God. The Word of God can't handle that one. Let me tell you, no human counselor can penetrate as far as the division of the soul and spirit. It's the Word of God that does that. It's the Word of God that brings conviction. Don't rob the Word of God of its power. Let's look at the next word. Not only does it lay the foundation of doctrine... And as we study that, bring to light, bring to bear our own sin. But thirdly, it's profitable for correction. And this is the positive element. This means to restore to the right path. When you correct something, you, you make it right. The Word of God not only convicts us of sin, but it shows us the path we are to go down. We, we, it puts us down the right path again. How does it do this? Well... It's the Word of God that gives us power to overcome sin, right? Psalm 119.9, you all know it. How can a young man keep his way pure? 
By keeping it according to thy what? Thy word. Thy word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It is the word of God that gives us the power to overcome sin. It not only brings conviction, but then in turn it gives us the power to overcome it and sets us down the right path. You'll be reminded in Ephesians chapter 6 when we are instructed to put on the full armor of God in order that we might stand firm against the schemes of the devil. What is one of that armor? It is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is the Word of God that gives us the power over sin. We do well to follow the example of our Savior when being led led into the wilderness by the Spirit. You remember in Matthew chapter 4, he's being led and he's going to be tempted by the devil. He's going to be tempted. And three times he is tempted. And three times he responds. How does he respond? Does he say, oh, uh, I, I, need to, uh, I need to identify what desire I'm not meeting, what need is not being met in order that I might overcome this sin? No. Does he respond by saying, well, you know, I think it's my low self-esteem that's, that's causing me to stumble here? No. Three times, three times he's tempted, three times he responds, it is written. Three times he quotes the word of God to overcome the temptations of Satan. It's the word of God that gives us the power in those times of temptation. Fourthly, the word of God not only lays the, the doctrine, the teaching, it not only brings to light our sin, and not only sets us down the right path, but forth it trains us in righteousness. This is the continual nurturing and the daily experiential knowledge. This is rightness of life. Here's your practical Christianity. This is the practical outworkings of a righteous life, a, a life that is right before God. It is the Word of God that is profitable for this. And people, we dare not stay just in this one category. First, we need to lay the foundation of sound doctrine. I think it is so ironic today that, that in our youth groups, that in our churches today, we want to shun theology as if it's irrelevant and we want to turn just to the practical side of it. Isn't it ironic The Scripture does just the opposite? Scripture says, before you can have the practical outworkings of a righteous life, you must lay the... the the foundation of sound doctrine. It has to be there before you can have any kind of practical Christianity. You must have a foundation in theology. What's the result? Look in verse 17. That the man of God may be adequate or complete, equipped for every good work. That the man of God may be adequate. What do you mean adequate? Well, he's adequate to live a righteous life. He's complete because of the Word of God. Right? He now, through the knowledge of the Word of God, can lay doctrine. He'll be exposed of his sin, but because of, because of the, the Word of God profits him to correct that sin, he'll be put down the right path, and then he'll be in a continual righteous life. He's complete for that. The words in Second uh, Peter... And so often this verse is neglected, I think. Second Peter chapter 1 
and verse 3 it says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through, notice, through the true knowledge of him. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. We lack nothing. We lack nothing as Christians. The word of God is sufficient for our problems. It is profitable. And I think many of you may be saying, well, you know, I understand that. That, you know, as I read the scripture and, and it says, you know, this is sin. And, and if I'm doing that, then I realize that I'm wrong. And it, and it instructs me what to do, right? And so I get back on the path of righteousness. And then, and then I continue to read scripture and, and I continue in a, in a righteous life. Right? I, you know, we all, we all understand that. But, but there's something, look in verse 16 again, there's something we must deal with. You notice the words, it says, all scripture is profitable. It's not just those passages of scripture that are directly applicable to you and I. It is not just those that tell us the do's and don'ts. We must move beyond that. How is it that all Scripture is profitable? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. That moves us on to point two. Number two, how is it Scripture, all Scripture is profitable? Number two, it motivates our behavior. It motivates our behavior. Firstly, it motivates our praise and our worship. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians. The book of Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, another familiar verse. None of this is new to you. I do this by way of reminder. Colossians 3, 16. Let's look at it. Read it. I'll read it. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Notice the result. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. When the word of Christ dwells within us, it produces in us an attitude of thanksgiving, an attitude of praise, an attitude of worship. Right? When we gaze upon the glory of God, when we understand doctrine, when we understand theology, when we understand where we've come from, we glorify God for that. It produces in us thankfulness, thanksgiving. Again, in Psalm 119, you don't have to turn there, just, just listen as I read read a few, few of these verses as a psalm, the psalmist, his attitude of thanksgiving due to the word of God. He says in verse 7, I shall give thanks to thee with upright, uprightness of heart when I learn thy righteous judgments. Again, in verse 62, he says, at midnight I shall rise to give thanks to thee because of thy righteous ordinances. As he gazed upon the law of God, the ordinances of God, he gave God thanks. Most of you, I think, are familiar with Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is a great psalm on the omniscience and the omnipotence and the omnipresence of God. It's a great psalm. And the psalmist goes through and he talks about that there's nowhere we can hide from God. Everywhere he goes, he is there. He talks about God forming, for thou dost form my inward parts. He talks about God's creation of him. 
and when he has all these wonderful thoughts about the, the attributes of God and the glory of God, and he gets down to verse 17 and he, and he cries out, Oh, how precious are thy thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! You see, when he gazed upon the glory of God, when he understood the attributes of God, it resulted in an attitude of praise and thanksgiving. Not only, not only does it impact our worship, but it impacts how we respond to God in our, in our devotional life. We, we should be thanking God for what He has done, for all that He's done as we understand who He is and what He's done for us. Let me read you. This is a great quote. It's a little longer, so bear with me, but it's a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. As he gazed upon the glory of God. Listen, listen to what he says. He says, He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than, than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. He goes on, And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is contemplating Christ, a balm for every womb, amusing of the Father, there is a quietness for every grief, and in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea, be lost in the immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject, subject of the Godhead. That was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He realized the impact theology had on his own worship. And you know, I'm convinced that today that there's a, we, we, shun, we shun anything that takes our mind to think through. I'm convinced that that's why we, we downplay hymns so much. We, we are enamored by choruses, you know, two or three line choruses. And, and I think the reason is, is because we can't make the connection. We don't understand how it is our mind can help us worship, how it is that theology impacts our worship. We need to understand that. As we understand the attributes of God, it moves us to an attitude of praise and of worship. Not only that, not only does it motivate our praise and our worship, but it motivates us towards godliness. It motivates us towards godliness. And in order to show you this, I want to look at a couple of Paul's epistles. The first is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Again, another very familiar passage to all of you. And I want to show you how, how the Apostle Paul in his epistles, how sound doctrine motivated him towards obedience. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Look at it. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You notice what he says? I urge you by what? By the mercies of God. 
What are the mercies of God? They're everything he has just explained in chapters 1 through 11. That is the mercies of God. He has told us of the utter depravity of man, how we, we were destined to hell, how we deserve nothing good, how none of us, done, how none of us have done good. And then he, he goes on to describe our free gift of salvation, of justification by Christ. And then in chapter 8, he tells us about our, our future glorification. And then in chapter 9, 10, and 11, he goes through and describes in detail the sovereignty of God, God's election, God's predestination, that God's will shall be accomplished. And then he gets to verse, chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, I urge you by all of that, by all of that, I urge you to obey. You see, Paul understood doctrine had to come first. It had to be the foundation. It had to be that which motivates us towards godliness. Not only in Romans does he do this, but in Ephesians. The book of Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 1 again. Paul does the same thing. This is Paul's pattern throughout his epistles. First give the doctrine, first give the foundation, and then command us to obey. Verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, which you have been called. To walk in a manner worthy of your calling. People, if we do not understand where we have come from, if we do not understand all that God has done in our salvation, how can we, be, how can we walk in a manner worthy of that? You see, in Ephesians, in chapter 1, he goes through in detail and he, and he describes the sovereignty of God, God's will. It is God who chooses. And then in chapter 2, he, he says we are dead in trespasses and sin. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us. And he says, on this basis, you walk worthy of that. You notice, he doesn't tell us to obey in a vacuum. Don't obey for the sake of obedience. He says, no, you look back on all that God has done for you. You see his election. You see his choice of you, where he has brought you. And on that basis, you obey. You submit that's Paul's pattern. One other example is in Colossians. Book of Colossians, chapter 3 again. One more time Paul does this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then notice in verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. He says it again. If you have been raised up in Christ. Have you been raised up in Christ? He just told you. He told you back in, verse, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that you were dead, but you were made alive in Christ. We have to understand that. You see, we have to have the foundation of theology laid we have to understand that before we, can, before we have a reason for obeying. It is the motive. It is that which motivates us to a godly life. So many of us today want to make a dichotomy between the practical side and the theological side. We don't see any relation between them. I, I, I like to say that, that, that many of us today like to, to simply live in the second half of Paul's epistles without ever understanding the first half of Paul's epistles. 
We must. We cannot divorce the two. They are inseparable. That was Paul's pattern. It is our motive for obeying. Most of you uh, know Bob Smith, Dr. Robert Smith, our, uh, is our first year as, a, as heading up our biblical counseling department. And I had the chance to take intro to biblical counseling last semester. And he made a statement that at first kind of shocked me, but the more I thought through it, the more I realized how right it is, how correct he was. He made the statement that seldom, seldom does he see a counseling problem that at its root is not bad doctrine. He says almost every time someone comes to me for counseling, the root is bad doctrine. That's quite a statement. You don't think theology impacts your life? You don't know how theology impacts your life, how your view of God, how your view of man influences your behavior. Our own president, Dr. MacArthur, has said it time and time again. He says, quote, the depth of our holiness is directly proportional to our knowledge of God's word. Directly proportional, and he's right. Richard Baxter, he understood this principle. He was a great pastor, a Puritan pastor in the 1600s. And he had a, imagine this, he had a congregation of 800 families. Yet, he and his associates spent every Monday and every Tuesday going throughout the parish throughout families, taking 15 or 16 families a week and instructing them in the catechism. Instructing them in the catechism. Objectively teaching them theology. And throughout the year, he would, he would cover every family in the congregation, all 800 families. He was committed to teaching theology because he understood the impact it would have upon his congregation. He understood that. Today, if we ever opened up a catechism in our youth groups, we would be laughed out of there. Wouldn't we? How archaic is that? That will bore them. Don't give them a catechism. We need to understand theology. We need to understand doctrine. Why? Because it makes us complete. Not only that, because it motivates us to praise and it motivates us to godliness. The last point, why do we need to understand theology? Point three. Why? Because it unmasks false teachers. It unmasks false teachers teachers. And, and I can safely say that while you are here at the Master's College, while you're taking classes here, that you will not, you know, most likely be exposed to, to heresy unless you take a class with Dewey or somebody like that. You, you, might, you might get a little. But uh, for the most part, you, you won't be exposed to, to, to unsound teaching because the teachers here are, are well equipped and you will learn immensely. However, once you step out of this circle of the Master's College, you will be overwhelmed by what is out there, by the amount of unsound doctrine. You will be exposed to it on every side. And we need to know sound doctrine that we might guard against it. Scripture gives us repeated warning, repeated warning time after time to beware of false prophets, beware of unsound doctrine. Matthew 7.15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. And he's talking about the teacher here. He's not describing, you know, so many times I see this picture of, of you'll, you'll have a picture of a congregation and you'll have all these people in sheep and then you'll have one that's a wolf and is dressed up in sheep's clothing and is sitting out there. That's not what that verse is teaching. 
He's talking about the man behind the pulpit. It's the teacher who comes in dressed as a ravenous wolf. We need to be aware of him. In First uh, Timothy chapter 4, he says, in verse 1, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits of doctrines of demons. We need to be aware of them. And over in Second Peter, book of Second Peter, he says, he again warns us, Scripture warns us of unsound teaching. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. It's going to come. We're going to be exposed to false teachers. And we need to know sound doctrine in order to overcome it. How do we expose them? How do we expose these false teachers? You guessed it. The study of theology, the study of sound doctrine. Look at the book of 1 Timothy again. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Another, another familiar passage. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy. Let's go to 2 Timothy. I'm sorry. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. And, and before I, I read this verse, I want to tell you that the context of this passage is, is in verse 18. It says, Men have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. He's talking about heresy. There's heresy within the church. And he instructs Timothy in verse 15. He says, You be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Why? Handling accurately the word of truth. That is how we overcome and expose false teaching. By handling accurately the word of truth. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I already read to you about the doctrines of demons. But look down in verse 6. How do we overcome, how do we overcome these, these false teachers? How do we expose them? Verse 6, he says, In pointing out these things to the brethren... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, notice this next phrase. Constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. That's how we expose them. That's how we expose what's false, by teaching what is true. Right? That's basic. That's basic. And many of you might say, well, what harm is there in, in some of this, you know, teaching that we disagree with, this false teaching? You know, so, so what if, if the charismatics want to believe believe in tongues. So, so what if they want to believe in prophets? What harm, what harm is it? Do we really need to divide over such a thing? You know, what harm can, can some of this false doctrine do? Well, first of all, in Second Peter, Peter calls it destructive heresies, maligning the way of truth. But let me, let me illustrate this for you. Um, this, this past school year, I had the opportunity to, uh, to do a little internship over at Word of Grace and where the counseling department, in the counseling department, where they, they answer the letters written into John MacArthur, for the most part. And, and one day, the guy I worked with, Dave, showed me a letter from a lady who had written into, written into Dr. MacArthur. And I, I want to show you the destructive nature of unsound teaching. This was a lady who, who she writes to, her name is Patty, she writes to Dr. MacArthur. She says, Pastor MacArthur, on November 22nd, my best friend and dearest sister in the Lord went home to be with Jesus. 
the autopsy results showed that she had suffered from an undiagnosed heart disease for quite some time. The reason I am writing to you is because of some events that occurred over the past seven years of her life, and in particularly over the last three months she was on earth. I am deeply disturbed over what I believe was the unscriptural, dangerous teachings Patty received. And in this letter, it's, it's a long letter, it's a seven-page type letter, and it goes on to detail that this, that this Patty had been saved out of a horrible background. She had been saved, and she, and she found her way into a charismatic church. And, and it, it, it describes a number of amazing events about different prophecies that, that they prophesied over her that, that didn't come true, but you know, no one ever questioned it. And, it. and it just goes through, and it describes things like that. And in one instance, when one of these prophecies, one of the prophets prophesied over a, a 15-year-old girl who uh, they said would go to the mission field. You are called to the mission field. That's where you'll spend your life. And three months later, she drowned. You know, she never ended up on the mission field, but no one ever questioned the, the, the character of the prophet. And as a result of that, Patty left this church. And, and after she left this church, the letter goes on to say that Patty began to suffer from various and assorted health problems. In the first two months, she did not want to even go to the doctor because of the name, your health, and claim it advice she was receiving. I, fan, I finally managed, this is her friend talking, I finally managed to break through to her and she went for medical advice. It was discovered that she had some small cysts on her right ovary and surgery was requested for October 4th. However, and foremost, her surgeon told her that the extreme pain was regularly experiencing could not be due to the cyst. And the internist, she also visited, suggested that further testing be done in the chest cavity. Patty declined, which I, would, which I believe was a direct result of what occurred between August and November. She went in for a simple procedure, for a simple operation, but, but she was experiencing this tremendous pain. And the doctors felt there was something wrong, but she wouldn't let them examine her. And the reason she wouldn't is because, listen to this, because of this... this Lady Pastor had prophesied over her and said, God has shown the pastor Patty's heart. There was nothing wrong physically with her heart. Her heart was healthy. But that heart, but simply her heart was troubled over her lengthy illness and upcoming surgery. Notice this. Pastor MacArthur, Patty came through that surgery okay, but the cysts were not the problem. Less than three months after these prophecies, Patty died from a heart attack. Don't you tell me false teaching isn't destructive that we don't need to guard against it because it really doesn't matter anyway no it maligns the truth it is destructive we need to guard against it and we do that by learning sound doctrine as students of the master's college I believe many of you are committed to a godly life and in your quest for godliness don't focus so much on always trying to be practical always trying to be relational, always trying to be emotional. Instead, commit yourself to learning sound doctrine and you will see the impact it will have upon your life. Theology is not just for the theologians. It's just not something to put in a doctrinal statement. No, it is much more. It impacts our lives. How? It impacts our lives by making us complete. It impacts our lives by motivating our behavior and impacts our lives by exposing what is false out there. We need to be about the business of learning sound doctrine. In conclusion, 
I would like to say to you that in your classrooms, you will be exposed to great teachings. We have, I feel, one of the greatest faculties, Bible faculties here. And, and they will instruct you in sound doctrine in the Word of God. And my challenge to you is to not leave that instruction at the, at the door of the classroom. Don't have this attitude, okay, we're out of class now, time to be practical. Take what you learn and let it infuse your life. Let it impact your soul and your heart and watch it change your behavior. My prayer for you is the same prayer, is the same attitude that the Bereans had in Acts 17, 11. As you receive the word, as you receive sound doctrine, receive it with great eagerness and let it transform you into the image of God's Son. After I close in prayer, we're going to be led in another hymn by Chris and Joel. That's my challenge to you. Be about the business of learning sound doctrine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your word today. Father, help us as we gaze upon your truth, as we gaze upon your glory to be transformed from one level to the next. May we, may we know where we have been and all that you have done and may it result in an attitude of praise. May it result in a godly life. Father, I pray for the students here that they would not shun theology, that it would not be archaic and irrelevant to them, but that they would see the importance of learning it. Father, continue to bless this college. Continue to bless the students here. Father, we thank you for this time. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.